Please, please, please don't fast forward. This will take exactly 12 seconds. I, Kevin Pang, host of Proof, have a brand new book out called A Very Chinese Cookbook. If you want to learn proper Chinese cooking, this is the book to get. Again, it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook, and it's out in stores now. Okay, thanks. Bye. Chinese restaurant menus are huge. At its heart, Chinese cuisine is designed to give people choices, even if they end up ordering the same two or three dishes every time. There was once a time when Chinese restaurants in the U.S. served a few very specific types of Chinese food, that is, Cantonese dishes from around Hong Kong and Guangzhou. But now, there are Chinese restaurants in America devoted to the cooking of Shanghai, Xi'an, Sichuan, Taiwan, Beijing. You can almost say it's a golden era for Chinese cuisine in America. But as Chinese cuisine migrated to other parts of the world, the cooking also adapted to local tastes. Serve someone from Hong Kong a dish of American Chinese food, General Tso's chicken, crab rangoon, and they might not even recognize it as Chinese. I certainly didn't, growing up as an immigrant from Hong Kong. It had me asking, where do these dishes even come from? There's one dish in particular I keep thinking about. It's an American Chinese dish unique to Detroit, almond boneless chicken, otherwise known as ABC. We've cooked through the recipe before on our TV show, Cook's Country, and we know that folks in the Motor City love the dish, but its origins are a bit murky. Until now. We might finally know the origin story of ABC, and the sleuth behind this mystery is the grandson of a woman who claimed to have created this popular dish, a simple breaded filet of white chicken meat served in a delicious brown sauce. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, the story of an American Chinese classic from Detroit, Almond Boneless Chicken. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Hey, everyone. It's Kevin here. If you're listening to Proof, you probably love food. Maybe you're even a great cook already, or maybe you aspire to be one. And if that's the case, then Sur La Table is for you. Good cooking comes down to two things, skills and tools. Sur La Table has you covered on both. They have the largest recreational cooking class in the country, with over 40,000 classes for folks of any skill level, even the kids. And they stock high-quality tools and equipment from the best kitchen brands, many of which have come out on top in our product reviews at ATK, Allclad, Le Creuset, Breville, and more. So do yourself a favor and go wander the aisles of one of their retail stores. There are over 50 locations across the country. You can ogle beautiful pans, take that new kitchen gadget you've been eyeballing for a test drive, and just get inspired to cook something amazing. Visit surlatable.com to start cooking. That's S-U-R-L-A-T-A-B-L-E dot com. Writer and Detroit native Curtis Chen brings us today's story. When foodies debate Chinese food in America, they usually focus on the coasts, with their bustling Chinatowns in New York, San Francisco, and the San Gabriel Valley. It makes perfect sense, since those are the home to the largest and most vibrant communities. But it's important to know that the Chinese diaspora is widespread, encompassing nearly every zip code in America. In fact, 
Chinese Americans have been living in places like the Midwest since the mid-1800s. The move inland began thanks to the rise in anti-Asian hate along the Pacific coast during the gold rush and building of the Transcontinental Railroad when the Chinese came looking to build their fortunes. Not only did these early immigrants face physical violence, like mass lynchings and the burning down of their businesses and homes, but the federal government was also passing anti-Chinese laws like the Page Act of 1875. This effectively banned Chinese women from entering the country. The Chinese Exclusion Act came later in 1882, and that went on to ban most men as well. Heather Lee, professor at New York University, Shanghai, paints a picture of the era. Starting by the mid-1880s, you start to see uh, the Chinese population dispersed to places where there were fewer of them as a way to sort of diffuse tension by being in smaller numbers. I think the struggles, the conflicts, and the persistent fear that Chinese immigrants confronted on the West Coast uh, gave lots of Chinese immigrants reason to leave. My great-great-grandfather Gong Li Chin, the first in our family to immigrate to America, embodied this move to the heartland. Hoping to escape the poverty of southern China, he first traveled from Canton, China to Canton, Ohio. When he realized there weren't actually a lot of Chinese people living there, he trekked north to the city of Detroit in hopes of landing a job in the booming auto industry. Due to his limited English and the open hostility of the white auto workers, many of whom were immigrants themselves, Gong Li wasn't able to secure any factory job. Instead, he had to pivot and settle for a job working in one of the city's hand laundries. After years of saving up and sending money home, he opened his own laundry and then a grocery store. Now that he was classified as a merchant, which was one of the few categories exempted in the Chinese Exclusion Act, he was able to bring over his son, my great-grandfather Joe. Joe worked alongside his dad for years, and by the late 1930s, as the Great Depression was winding down, he started to think of new opportunities to expand the family empire. Historian Heather Lee again. So at that time, you really start to see Chinese restaurants pop up almost everywhere. Chicago, very quickly. Um, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So just these places that don't have a strong Chinese presence start having Chinese restaurants. It's this moment in which there's this convergence of uh, cultural and public interest in Chinese food and sort of the capitalization that Chinese immigrants were able to take. Joe was the one who converted our family into restaurateurs. And it wasn't just him. Joe managed to involve the whole family. I spoke to my Uncle Bill. He's Joe's oldest surviving son. And I talked to him about his experiences growing up at the family's first restaurant, Chin's Cafe. Uncle Bill turned 94 in 2023. They started washing dishes at the age of 10, standing on a wooden box. Um, the rest of the family, my brother would deliver, and my mother and sisters would be the waitresses. The restaurant was a hit. So I wanted to know more about my great-grandfather and how a man with no cooking experience could find such success. In the handful of family photos I've seen of Joe, he seems like a dapper man with his pressed suits. Uncle Bill described his dad as a savvy and hard-working businessman, but also as a kind person and one who could adapt to new situations. He, he enjoyed uh, speaking to people. I mean, he, he said that uh, he even learned to say in German, uh, hello to uh, people who come in. And uh, he's just a nice man. And uh, what can I say? We, we loved him and he loved us. This ability to blend in and get along was important to the restaurant's success. 
With the country experiencing a renewed sense of optimism, working-class families were craving cheap dining options outside the home. Chinese food became a good, affordable option. Because Chin's Cafe was located outside of Chinatown, Joe had to create a menu that appealed to a mainly non-Chinese clientele. That meant in addition to chop suey, they served dishes like hamburgers and french fries. Joe hired two cooks, one for each type of cuisine. Speaking of his first memories in that kitchen, Uncle Bill says, I could see him now making the dough, cutting it into little pieces of dough and making buns and uh, things like that. And I remember the first dish I learned to cook was bread and veal cutlet when I was probably 10, 12 years old. After the success of this first restaurant, Joe opened a second one a year later in 1940 with his son-in-law, Harry Chung. Because Harry was the face of the business, they adopted his family's surname, Chung's. That venture turned out to be an even bigger success. Chung's Cantonese cuisine was located in Detroit's small Chinatown. It offered a permanent menu that focused on Chinese food options. It was open seven days a week, nearly 24-7, and it served everyone in the city, regardless of race, class, religion, or sexual orientation. It really was a microcosm of the city. By the time I was born, Chung's had moved to a larger, fancier location in the city's new Chinatown. It was decorated with colorful spinning lanterns, brown teakwood screens, and lush green plants. The business had long established itself as one of the premier Chinese restaurants in Detroit. Don't take my word for it. Listen to some of our customers. They had the best egg rolls in the city. I haven't found any that match it yet. We used to have meetings at the restaurant. I used to eat the almond cookies and order the hot tea and egg drop soup or wonton soup. I would guess that more friends were made and business was conducted at Chung's than just about anywhere else in Detroit. My favorite childhood memories were all centered on my family's love for food. On the one day that we closed each year, Thanksgiving, we had a giant feast for our extended clan. Every wok, oven, and frying pan was in use, baking, boiling, or stir-frying something. Since there were so many cooks in the family, there was always a competition to see whose contribution would be gobbled up first. My dad's Chinese roast chicken always won. My tiny grandma June, who is Joe's daughter-in-law, was the biggest chef in our kitchen. Working at the restaurant since it first opened, the mini Madame Mao decided which dishes appeared on the permanent offerings and which ones would be our daily specials. She was also responsible for making some of our most popular items, like the egg rolls, almond cookies, and plum sauce. As she barked at me to help wrap the egg rolls faster or put the almond on the almond cookies more evenly, I would sneak a bite of the treats. To be honest, I was scared of Grandma June. She was always waddling around the kitchen yelling at someone for something. But her delicious cooking made it all okay. All the warmth she lacked in person came through in her food's amazing flavors. When I graduated to the dining room, I would spend hours reviewing our menu. One summer, I even challenged myself to sample every entree. I probably gained 10 pounds. Like most of the earliest Chinese restaurants in America, the huge selection centered on traditional Cantonese dishes from Guangzhou, as well as Cantonese-adjacent dishes created in America like chop suey, chow mein, and egg foo young. Of all the items on the menu, though, our best-selling entree by far was our almond boneless chicken, also called ABC. It's a breaded filet of white chicken meat served with a heavy brown sauce. It was an easy-to-make entree that I often consumed as a hearty after-school snack while studying. 
The battered and fried dish was placed over a bed of slivered iceberg lettuce and then ladled with a gravy made of soy sauce, cornstarch, and chicken broth. A garnish of crushed almonds would be sprinkled on top, and a bowl of white rice would be served on the side. The lunchtime portion had two fillets, while dinner was three. Paula Yu, former reporter of the Detroit News, talks about the first time she tried the dish. Even though it was a family-style restaurant, every single one of my non-Asian reporter colleagues all ordered the exact same dish, which I had never heard of before almond boneless chicken. We did order other food, but it seemed like everyone wanted their own personal dish of almond boneless chicken. No one wanted to share it. When I tried it, I couldn't blame them. It was delicious and one of the reasons why I miss Detroit. I love how almond boneless chicken is such a signature Chinese-American dish in the Motor City. Aurora Harris, a lecturer at University of Michigan-Dearborn, adds, I remember the um, batter on the chicken on almond boneless chicken was light. It wasn't too heavily fried. It came with uh, a light gravy that you could put on the rice. It was just like another type of comfort food. The almond boneless chicken was a clear star of our menu. We did have a couple of similar dishes. Almond pressed duck was a traditional Chinese entree that consisted of a duck filet with gravy, as well as hongying gai ding, a chicken stir fry with vegetables and whole almonds. But the ABC outsold both of its siblings, even combined. Not only was the dish on our menu, but it was also at nearly every other Chinese restaurant in the city. However, my grandma June, who loved sitting at the perch of the most popular Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, claimed that almond boneless chicken originated in our kitchen. In her brusque manner, Grandma June would just say, that's ours, and that's the way it was. I never questioned her claim. After all, she was the big boss, And if anyone would know about our menu, it would be her. Sadly, she's no longer with us. But I wanted to be sure of its origins. If we were the original source, then why wasn't the recipe written down? Or why didn't anyone patent it? And why not call it Chung's Chicken? I needed proof. After the break, Curtis dives deeper into the origin story of ABC. Hey, Proof listeners, Plugra's premium European-style butter is a favorite of bakers. Why? Cook's Illustrated Recipe developer Erica Turner sums it up. Hey, Kevin. Did you know that the kind of butter you use when you're baking can actually make a difference in how your dish turns out? I did not. Butters that are slow-churned, like Plugra, are easier to work with because they make doughs more pliable. The amount of fat in the butter also makes a difference. Tell me more. Okay, so most American butters contain around 80% butter fat, but European-style butters like Plugra have a higher fat content. In fact, Plugra Premium European-style butter always contains 82% butter fat. And you're saying 2% is enough to make a noticeable difference? Oh, yeah, definitely. With Plugra Slow Turn Butter and its 82% butter fat content, you'll notice richer, flakier pastries, cakes that rise higher, and cookies that crisp more easily. Embrace your inner butter lover. From professional kitchens to your home, visit plugra.com for more information. And now, back to our story. 
The first step in my research was to confirm that the dish was indeed a Detroit thing. As a writer and filmmaker, my work focuses a lot on the Asian American experience and social justice. I've traveled to over 44 states and 20 countries, and oftentimes, the hosts will treat me to their best version of Chinese food in their area. But I never saw almond boneless chicken, like I have in Motown. Trust me, I've tried. To confirm this observation, I spoke with a man who's been to even more Chinese restaurants than I have. Throughout his career, accountant and noted restaurant aficionado David Chan got to travel the country. By his own calculations, he's been to over 8,000 Chinese restaurants across the country. I would basically see dishes, primarily Americanized Chinese dishes, that I'd never seen before. So uh, not a lot of them, but still enough for me to understand that uh, within Chinese American food, there was a regionalism. There's honey chicken, which you find in primarily in Miami. There's the chow mein sandwich, which comes out of eastern Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island. There's the St. Paul sandwich, which did not come from St. Paul, Minnesota, but which was uh, in St. Louis. It's sort of an egg foo young sandwich. As for our restaurant's almond boneless chicken, David says that he's heard of the dish being found in a few other places outside Michigan, in nearby states like Ohio and Kentucky, but he weighed in on the argument. My vote is for Detroit as being where it's found, and just because it's so ubiquitous there. Also, I would mention that if you look at the other cities that have been associated with almond boneless chicken, Detroit's the only one that really had a Chinatown. So it would make sense for uh, Detroit to be the city where that dish originated. David's reasoning and expertise made sense to me. And while I was comfortable claiming it as a Detroit dish, did that mean it came from our restaurant? Next, I turned to my extended family. Though my great-grandpa had 10 children, many of whom went into the restaurant business, it was hard to get any of the older generation to talk. With many of them in their 80s and 90s, they either claimed to have fuzzy memories, refused to answer my questions, or just plain didn't return my calls. But thanks to my persistence, I was able to speak to one of the younger generations still working in the restaurant business. I got a hold of Steven, the son of my dad's cousin. He now works at Chin's Restaurant, which is the oldest Chinese restaurant in our family and one of the oldest in the Detroit area. He looked through the treasure trove of old menus from the family. So in the first menu, when we uh, dug into it, we, we saw that, that the first one didn't have the almond chicken, but when, I don't know how many years later, but one of the revised edition, even though it's still from whatever year that was, they decided to add the almond chicken on one of their newer menus. Interestingly, we did find both the almond press duck and the Hongyun Gaiding on the earlier menus. Maybe these weren't the dish's siblings, but actually its parents, the forerunners of the ABC. It's just another hunch. I asked my friend, artist Chi Wang Ang, to sift through his menu collection. He's collected over a thousand vintage menus from across the country. He looked through the ones from Detroit from the 1940s on, and according to him, almond boneless chicken didn't start to appear until the 1960s. So, with the time frame of the early 60s established, at least the version of the dish that my family sold, I had to wonder, what was happening in Detroit at the time that could have led to this dish coming about? The civil rights movement was in full swing, but it's also when our restaurant moved from its first location to the Cass Corridor, the city's red light district. Could these two things be related? 
The 1960s were a pivotal decade in America, especially in Detroit. It was a city where Malcolm X was raised and where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech before giving the same version in DC. By the late 1950s, the city was already experiencing a population decline after reaching a peak of 1.8 million at the start of the decade. As white flight emptied the inner city in favor of the outer suburbs, corporate employees and government workers had to trek back downtown to their white-collar jobs. The workforce needed a quick and easy way to get from home to work and back. Aurora Harris, the Chung's restaurant patron and a UM Dearborn lecturer you heard from earlier, explains. The construction of the freeways destroyed many neighborhoods. The primary ones was Chinatown and Black Bottom, and it dispersed the residents all over the city. Those with the economic means and fortitude often followed the white population out of the city. But the older citizens, less economically able, and more recent immigrants were left below the city's infamous border of Eight Mile Road. In search of other affordable areas within the city limit, the Cass Corridor became an appealing option for both the Chinese-American and Black communities. Located between the downtown core and Wayne State University, the area included a lot of poor whites who were originally from Appalachia. It also attracted the artist community and LGBTQ folks. As newly transplanted neighbors, the Chinese Americans and the Black community found a lot of similarities. They were both from the South, Southern U.S. and Southern China, and they were both poor. While being side-by-side with Black folks was an unfamiliar experience for many of the Chinese residents, Many African-Americans who came from the South as part of the Great Migration had some familiarity. Small neighborhood grocery stores in Black communities in the South often were run by Chinese merchants. The Chinese population in Detroit was small and shrinking, and we didn't have the biggest tourist base, so we didn't have a lot of Chinese customers at Chung's. Once again, we had to appeal to our customer base. I talked about this with Rosalind Butler, who runs Clayton's, a popular soul food restaurant in the area. There are not a lot of other minorities coming into the community opening restaurants. And so if the Chinese community came in and opened a restaurant, that means you were willing and open to accept the people of that community. And they, you know, the Chinese people, they necessarily needed us to sustain their business. So I think it was a welcoming point on both ends. My family had always tried to serve what our customers wanted, even special orders. When I was younger, I noticed we had a dish on the menu that featured crepe locks on top of a stir-fry. It's really not something you'd find in any region of China. I asked my dad what it was, and he explained that it was Jewish dumplings. He said we had a lot of Jewish customers and wanted to make them feel at home. So, just as Grandma June learned how to make corned beef for the Irish residents who lived near the previous location, it made sense that we would also want to learn how to cook something for our new neighbors. In this case, it was soul food. Rosalind Butler offers some additional insight about the popularity of almond boneless chicken. It was something that we always ate. When we ordered Chinese, which was quite often, at least maybe, you know, two, three times a month, almond chicken was number one. But why this dish? What made ABC so appealing to Rosalind's family and other Black customers? So chicken is one of the main proteins uh, in the African-American community, has gone back generations. During the time of slavery, chickens were something plentiful that the slave masters would give the slaves and so forth. In the Black community back then, chicken was used as a celebratory meal. 
And so over the generation, over time, it just became an everyday staple. It's a form of fried chicken. And so I think that most reminded us of our own home cooking. So this establishes the time frame and the desire of how almond boneless chicken came to be. In a way, you could say ABC is an early example of fusion cooking. It combines traditional Chinese cooking with soul sensibilities. There's fried chicken meat served with brown gravy, and you have it with a bowl of rice. As a kicker, our customers would sometimes order it with a tall glass of sweetened oolong tea with a lemon slice. Doesn't get more southern than that. As I ended my interview with Rosalind, I wanted to thank her for her time, as well as the friendship between our two communities. We really appreciate you guys here in Detroit for sticking with us for so long over the time of the riots, rebellion, uh, uh, coming from the 70s off the crack and drug age. A lot of the Chinese restaurants that we do have in the city of Detroit are staples in our community. And that's the beauty of food. It brings together communities to create something special. While ABC has endured, Chinese restaurants have faced new challenges post-COVID. Once again, Chinese restaurants had to adapt. I met up with Gary Mui, a local Detroiter who grew up in the kitchen of the Golden Star restaurant where his dad worked as the head cook. I asked what inspired him to get into the restaurant biz. I kind of always gravitate towards the kitchen and I always watch my dad cook and I kind of picked up working with a walk just from watching him. So I was able to pick a lot of things up and bring the breath of the walk to, to life. And I know that's what flavors a lot of the food, so just watching him, I learned a lot of things. The first dish I made was actually almond chicken because I helped my dad do the almond chicken and it was actually one of my favorite dishes. I actually had almond chicken before I even had fried chicken in America, if you could believe that. After working for years in a corporate kitchen, Gary decided to open his own restaurant in the city. Alma is a fusion restaurant that opened in 2020. It was a challenge, but he's managed to find a loyal fan base. So our menu consists of, I want to say, is a representation of our cultural diversity in Metro Detroit. Um, there's, there's Mexican on there. My business partner is a first-generation Mexican-American, and I'm first-generation Chinese-American, so we incorporated some of the Chinese aspect in there and some Mexican dishes. It's an eclectic menu that reflects the city. Yeah, you kind of have to adapt to what your clientele is looking for. So I want to introduce flavors that I really like and I really enjoy, and hopefully they enjoy it also. But I think you have to be able to adapt to what your customer base is looking for. There was one dish that Gary knew he had to include. Uh, the almond chicken, like I said, was my one of my first passions and one of my first loves as being grown up in a Chinese restaurant. But I wanted something that kind of... I love having gravy and I like bread a lot. <laughs> For being uh, Asian, it's kind of it's kind of strange, but I love having bread and gravy together. But Gary wanted to add his own twist. So I thought something that was really cool would be like a chicken and waffle. It's kind of representative of like the area that we're in right now. It's very popular. And uh, I just thought if we added some gravy in there with some scallion waffles, which is very similar to a scallion pancake in the Chinese cuisine, and uh, we just thought it'd be a good match. Gary offered to let me try his new creation. I recognized the chicken and gravy right away. Though the presentation was slightly different, no silver serving tray with a pull-off lid, it was undeniably a variation of the original dish. Taking that first bite, I was transported back to Chinatown. It tasted great. I wanted to get some feedback from some of his customers. I talked to Robin and Mario Pearson. So when I first saw the item on the menu, it was called boneless chicken. Um, I grew up on it, so I've been eating it since the 70s. 
And so when I seen it, I said, oh my goodness, this is with a waffle. I said, I wanted to try it. I, I came in and I had ordered chicken and waffles. And then, I, he, he, I, well, I was ordering chicken and waffles while I was looking at the menu. I said, uh, what's this scallion waffles? And he was like, well, it, it doesn't come with syrup. It comes with gravy. And I was like, well, let me try that. And, 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 and when he brought it out and I tried it, I was like, oh, my God. And she said, do you have that with rice? <laughs> so can I have that with rice? And we went from there. You know, it was, it was delicious. It, I, I love it. Now, whenever they come into the restaurant, Mr. Pearson orders the ABC chicken and waffles, while his wife, Robin, goes with the old school option. They're both happy diners. Yeah. Every Friday, my mom <laughs> went and got us Chinese food. So when I tasted Gary's, that's what it takes me back to, my childhood. My yeah. getting almond chicken on a Friday. <laughs> So, did my family invent almond boneless chicken? There are some clues that point to our restaurant as a likely source. Our location was the physical center of Chinatown, and thanks to all my extended relatives, we had an extensive network throughout the metropolitan area who often shared recipes with each other. On top of that, we had many former cooks in the family who went on to open their own restaurants. So, if we did originate the dish, maybe that's how the recipe spread to all the different restaurants in the area, through word of mouth, each adding their own spin. But these are just assumptions. I don't know if I would ever find a smoking gun, and I'm not sure the answer really matters. Almond Boneless Chicken's popularity during the Civil Rights era in Detroit, when the Chinese-American and African-American communities came together, is something to be proud of. It's a dish that connects the different strands of the city's history, and I know that's at least something my Grandma June would agree with. Thanks to Curtis Chin for bringing us today's story. You can read more about Curtis, his grandma, and almond boneless chicken in his memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. And by the way, ATK has developed a recipe for almond boneless chicken, and it's super tasty. Go to americasestkitchen.com, or you can find the recipe in my book, A Very Chinese Cookbook. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickard. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Angelica Quintanilla, also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Poynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik, Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of host production and our director of production is Diane Knox fact checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins special thanks to Curtis's family for being a part of the story as well as all the customers who frequented his family's Chinese restaurant in Detroit for over 65 years 
Thanks to all the participating interviewees, as well as Corey Fallows and David Bowman. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Plugra Premium Butter and Surla Tob. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up.